Alright everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Um, brief announcement, I guess. Uh, it's been a while since my last episode. I think I want to start having themes, really try to tie these together with a topic or something in the news, something something topical, I guess. Uh, try to come out with an episode every week. Hopefully every Tuesday, since my Tuesdays seem to be free. And with that out of the way, I think I can jump into today's episode topic. So recently in the news, we saw that uh, four uh, American citizens crossed the Mexican border, Mexican border, and uh, they were fired upon and then kidnapped. And I think recently that uh, two of those people who were kidnapped were murdered and two of them survived so that's it's not great news but it's it's what happened and I saw that ever the Warhawk uh, Congressman Dan Crenshaw wants to violate violate Mexican sovereignty by engaging in his high cartel by deploying the US military against uh, the cartels in Mexico. But that's a whole nother bag of worms that we might get into if I get that far. But basically for this episode, I want to go over um, the relationship that the United States has with uh, the nation of Mexico and where uh, these relation, how these, how the relation has changed from basically the early 19th century to where we are now. So starting off, uh, America, the United States, we gained our independence in 1776. Um, The Constitution, I don't have exact dates for this pulled up in front of me, but the Constitution came into effect uh, 20 years after that, give or take. So that's when like the government we know today officially came into effect. So that's, that happens. If you didn't know now, the revolution ends when the Constitution gets ratified. So, that's great. Uh, Mexico, on the other hand, gained its independence in 1821. And from the start, it kind of fell under the basically all the treaties we had with uh, the Viceroyalty of New Spain. Just molded over to uh, the new uh, Mexican government. So basically, no claim to like uh, the state of Texas, a clearly defined border for uh, the uh, the territories that the U.S. occupied and the territories of Mexico. Um, and like everything was fine and dandy basically until uh, Texas. Basically, most things in the southern United States are fine until Texas gets involved. Um, unless you're in college football, then like if Texas is involved, you're probably going to win. That's probably my only joke for this episode because there's a lot of death. A lot of people die. And that the, de- the rocky part of the relationship between the United States and Mexico starts with the Texas Revolution. Uh, Mexico, in an attempt to um, 
industri not industrialized, but populate its northern uh, regions that were basically uh, still frontier at the time, and basically settlement of most Mexicans south of the Rio Grande didn't want to uproot and move north because it was basically overrun, not overrun, but like, we know the uh, Native American tribes of, uh, what's the Sioux, uh, like the Comanche and the Apache, they did a lot of raiding in those areas, and after the Mexican-American War, that will become a point of contention. But for right now, uh, Texas is a province of Mexico. The Mexican government invites a lot of American settlers to come to Texas to basically civilize the area. Civilize in quotations, because like civilization, blah, 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 blah. Civilization is a weird phrase. But basically, to make it safer for the Western civilization, the idea of Western society, basically. Uh, but what happened was there were certain conditions that these incoming uh, settlers had to take. They had to renounce their American citizenship. Uh, they had to revert to Catholicism. Uh, I'm pretty sure slavery was like not allowed, but all these people, most of their vast ranches and lands were worked by slaves. Because, as we know, slavery is a hot topic in the United States up until the 1860s. That's neither, neither uh, here nor there. Uh, there are certain... Basically, they had to stop being Americans, and they had to become Mexicans. Uh, if you know Americans, we don't really do that too well. Texans, specifically, are a very arrogant kind of people. To their benefit, they fought a war against the Mexican government, and they won. So, rah, rah, go Texas. The issue that this created for the United States is that, right, um, I think a decade after the Texas, the Texas War for Independence, the United States, um, the United States, we annexed Texas because of the whole slavery thing. Again, it's neither here nor there. Um, the text issue here is that Mexico did not um, did not recognize Texas as an independent country. So, a weird thing that was happening is there was a border dispute where Texas recognized that their border with Mexico extended to the Rio Grande River, the modern-day Texas border. And Mexico, I forget the name of the river, but I'm pretty sure it's the river that flows through San Antonio. So it's hundreds of miles of territory that are disputed. And when the United States annexes Texas and Texas joins the Union, the United States takes up those border claims. And the Mexican government views this as a declaration of war. So the war happens basically in two phases, I'd say. Well, three, I guess, because you have California forming a republic and breaking away from Mexico just to get annexed by the United States. But, um, basically you have Zachary Taylor, 
He's like a real big general at the time, a big wig. And this is why the president at the time, uh, James K. Polk, doesn't really like him. But the problem with that is Zachary Taylor finds great success in the war against Mexico. And he basically dunks on the Mexican army, which is vastly overstretched and undersupplies because you don't know between the rich and fertile valleys of central Mexico and the plains of Texas is a massive desert. So it's not that great, uh, trying to get supplies and keeping your troops fed up there. Uh, Zachary Taylor, before he can win any more glory for himself, he will eventually become president. But um, he's basically sacked by uh, James K. Polk and is basically put in on the back burner for a general named Winfield Scott. He's, very, he's basically the head of the United States. He's the face of the United States Army for the majority of the 19th century. He's a, he plays a big part later in uh, the Civil War, at least at the beginning of the Civil War. Um, Winfield Scott uh, lands an army in Veracruz, and he basically takes the same path that um, the conquistadors did, I forget their name, uh, Cortes. Basically takes the same path of conquest that Cortes took, and eventually marches into Mexico City and occupies it. They occupy it for a short amount of time before a treaty is finally negotiated. Uh, a key part of this treaty, like I said, is, well, from before, that, uh, is that while Mexico will relinquish their claims to most of the uh, territory, territory that the United States claimed from Southern Texas, Western Texas, all the way to California, the United States government will pay uh, an indemnity, basically compensation for any land that any Mexican citizen lost, but also uh, Mexican citizens who don't want to leave their property in the United States have uh, the option to become a citizen of the United States through this conquest. Uh, one of the key factors of this um, this treaty is that the United States has to basically prevent uh, raids from Comanche and Apache uh, Native American tribes into uh, northern Mexico. And basically the United States quickly finds out that this is essentially impossible. So that's where uh, a few years later the Gadsden Purchase comes into effect, that's the bottom half of Arizona and New Mexico. Basically, we couldn't, we didn't want to void the treaty, so we bought the area that the Apache and the Comanche were raiding. So that's basically the Mexican-American War covered. After that, relations are pretty simple, where America has more they're doing, we're dealing with a lot more with slavery during the 1860s. That's where things kind of get interesting again, because if you don't know, like you should know, because it's the only civil war, well, we have other civil wars. That's not the truth there. The civil war in the United States was taking place. So the whole idea of the Monroe Doctrine, which was a huge, the idea that the Western, the The Americas, North and South America, were 
protect under the United States' sphere of influence, sphere, sphere of influence, maybe it's a sphere, sphere of influence, and that it would, basically, it excluded further European exploitation of Latin American and North American uh, territories. Yeah, it didn't really, it doesn't really come into effect until uh, the early 19th century because America doesn't really have that strong of a navy or an army until that time. But during the 1860s, because America was kind of preoccupied with uh, just kicking the shit out of itself for five years straight, Mexico uh, defaulted on its debts to the pretty sure it's the, the Second Empire, French Empire, under Napoleon III. And Napoleon uses the Mexico's refusal to repay their debts as a justification to install some Austrian guy as an emperor of Mexico. It doesn't work off too well. It doesn't work too well because I think it's the Battle of Puebla, Puebla where that guy is eventually murdered and uh, the Mexicans kick uh, they kick out the the French this is where we get uh, Cinco de Mayo I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure don't quote me on that I don't know enough about Mexican history to, to make those claims but a big part of that was after the United States was done with the Civil War we funded we funded and sent arms to those Mexican revolutionaries in order to get rid of this guy. So with that happened, basically after that, um, nothing too crazy happened. Uh, Mexico was involved in the Spanish-American War and other phases of our early imperialism that can probably I can probably talk about later. I probably will talk about because I have I've read a paper about Cuba, and Cuba's, it's interesting. American imperialism is, is interesting. Uh, but in Mexico, they went through a phrase, a phase called the Profiriato. And this is basically when a general who became dictator ruled Mexico from 1876 to 1910. It was stable, basically, because he, he was a really good dictator. Was he a good, was it good for the Mexican people? Probably not, because when the time came for, when he was like, okay, I'm stepping down, he saw that the party that he was basically running was gonna lose, so he was like, oh, double take, I'm actually staying, and he lost the election, but he, uh, He decided to stay in power. So the first phase of the Mexican Revolution came into play, and a guy named uh, Francisco Madero was in the United States when he basically wrote a very important document and basically called to arms to overthrow. Uh, Porfirio Diaz. Porfirio Diaz didn't last much longer after that letter was written. All this is taking place in the early 1900s. So, think before World War II. This is where 
the second big important event in Mexican-American relations take place, and that is the revolutionary, some people call him a bandit, some people call him a hero, the character of Pancho Villa enters our, the dialogue. He is a, I don't exactly know his background, I do know he made a movie, dur he made a movie during the third part of the revolution to try to help fund himself. It didn't, it doesn't end out too well for him, but that's neither here nor there. The interest, what's important is the Furiato in Mexico ends with Madero coming to power. Madero doesn't do everything that the revolutionaries wanted him to do, and he's quickly murdered. And another dictator takes place. Uh, that dictator goes after the more radical radical leaders of the revolution, uh, specifically Pancho Villa, who is in the north, and Zapata. A lot of people know who Zapata is for some reason. Uh, he was a major, he's like a proto-communist, I guess. He was one of his big like tenants was uh, land reform. And basically, um, I forget. Basically that guy's the, the guy who overthrew Madero is once again overthrown. And I think they're, I'm, mess, I'm messing up all these, uh, all this bit. Basically, in the middle of all this, World War I starts. And Mex the Mexican government at the time gets the Zimmerman telegraph from the German Empire. Mexico is a shit show at the time. It doesn't, it, there's, it can't organ, it, it's army, it's armies, because there's multiple Mexican authorities, like, locales, just beefing it out in the Mexican countryside, trying to retain power. And they, the Mexican Revolution doesn't really, really end until 1924. By that time, there's not uh, Mexican. Okay, actually, let's take back one quick step back uh, before the revolution. Mexican uh, American companies dominated uh, large sectors of the Mexican economy, like most of it in the northern part of the country where their raw resources were extracted. So, like copper. I don't know if zinc was a thing yet, but oil definitely in northern Mexico. It's a huge deal. And specifically, there was a strike at, I think it was a copper mine. Not a copper mine, but like a copper, some industrial base close to uh, the Arizona border. And basically, the governor of that uh, province in Mexico, was they were unable to uh, contain this uh, strike by the copper workers. So they gave an appeal to the governor of Arizona in the United States to send down, I think it was like 250 Arizona Rangers and to help like, just to help like contain and hopefully put an end to this uh, strike. What ended up happening is the strikers broke into the complex, the copper complex and the Arizona Rangers slaughtered 
probably not hundreds, but definitely like dozens of uh, Mexican workers. And those people just returned home. There was no, this was one of the, one of the, this is an example of how shitty it was to be in Mexico and basically just get shat on by international companies, uh, forgotten by your own government and life wasn't great. After the revolutionary, the Mexican revolution, things get tacitly better. Uh, land reform comes to a, comes into effect. Uh, the government nationalizes a lot of foreign owned industries and things are relatively okay. Then, um, in terms of Mexican American revolution, um, Mexican American, uh, relations it's fine uh the foreign companies are compensated extravagantly because that's how you have to deal with international conglomerates things uh and then world war ii happens world war ii is another like th there's internal strife in mexico but it's nothing like too like crazy mexico ends up joining um the Allied war effort, and they send a bunch of pilots to the United States for training, and I think they form a badass squadron called I don't know. I think it's like the Flying Aztecs or the Aztecas or something like that. Um... Uh, not a lot of Mexicans will die in combat, but they will serve. Uh, after that, there's treaties between uh, the United States and Mexico, nothing too crazy. There's basically the same political party that was in charge after the revolution stays in power until the 80s. And It was basically tied to the American, the U.S.'s hip during most of the Cold War. So that kind of gets us out of the... the historical precedence of Mexican-American re uh, relations. What changes in basically the 70s and the 80s is the rise of the cartels. Now, weed has always been a weird crop in the United States, especially as a, uh, a drug. Uh, weed that was grown in Mexico and sent to the United States has, that's basically been going on for the longest time. There's the, basically the weed growers and dealers have an infrastructure, infrastructure set up to send illegal goods from Mexico to the United States and also vice versa because U.S. gone arms tend to trickle back into Mexico. It's not here and we're there though because what happens in the 70s and the 80s is cocaine becomes one of the most sought after drugs inside of the United States. And President Ronnie, I don't know his real name, Reagan, um, he declares war on drugs and 
the Cube Colombian uh, cocaine drug cartels uh, at the time, uh, basically monopolized by Pablo Escobar. Their main hub for getting drugs into the United States is by flying them into Miami. That doesn't that that basically gets cut off. It's their only entry into the United States. The Colombians only entry into the United States is basically severed by the Reagan administration. So what they do is they shift over to Mexico. They basically make these cartels their middlemen. Uh, locally, the cartels are a uh, they're basically a para societal force. They it's it's a mob. It's if you don't like the same way mobs worked in the early twenties and the early teens of the United, like the early 20th century United States is they were an ex, a parasocial, not parasocial, but like extra societal organization that doesn't, it doesn't operate under the guises of the government. It's basically a government in its own self, its own right. And it's focused more on like familial, familial bonds and community bonds than elections and ideologies and ideas and the way these people the cartels have made their money for the past 70 60 years has been through the drug trade beyond that they're mostly just uh, they're just a mob um, but it, like I said it exploded after the Colombians basically couldn't sell their product directly into the United States. They had to go through the cartels. And then the cartels started uh, growing their own product, heroin, and they started importing methamphetamines from, which is weird. I didn't know that most methamphetamines came from Asia, but I guess like opium, like meth from Afghanistan and like stuff like that, like it's a huge, it's a, it's a billion, 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 probably a trillions dollars worth of trade that flows illegally through Mexico. And that's crazy. But the United States is the biggest market for all these trades. So as long as America keeps buying, uh, keep making the cartels richer. So that's like the illegal part. Uh, we can... I guess I'll end. I'll end this episode by talking about the militarization of Mexico, Mexico's government against the cartels, and how it's been give and take for like the past ten to twenty years. Uh, but in 1990, uh, fantastically, thank you, Bill Clinton, uh, NAFTA uh, got passed, and that's fantastic because it. We don't have to, there's no, there's no burdens. There's no barriers to trade. Basically, Mexican Coca-Cola can come here, which is way better than American Coca-Cola. I don't care what anyone says. No, I don't like Pepsi. Mexican Coca-Cola all the way. Uh, it's basically tied Mexico at the hip economically to the United States which is neither good nor bad. It's just the way it is. And recently I've seen that Mexico is kind of becoming the, uh, 
the balance against uh, the rise of China, if you want to get into the whole geopolitical dance, because Mexico's Mexico's ability to manufacture is more skilled and less corrupt than China. But that's not here or there. We're talking about the United States and Mexico. We can get to the China. China. We can talk about China one day. China. Um, illegal immigration is a huge thing, but uh, in the recent years, it's stopped being. It's not been Mexicans mostly. It is. Um, people from Central America going through Mexico and trying to get into the United States. And that's because, well, the history of Central America is very, it's not great. There's a lot of purges and revolutions and coups and weird, weird shit that goes, honestly, goes back to the 1490s. Uh, but anyways, in uh, the 2000s, I think a new political party basically came into power in Mexico. This is speculation. This is actually something I don't have pulled up in front of me. But basically, their whole their whole deal with dealing with the cartels was basically go to war. And their whole strategy was to cut the head off the snake. So the biggest cartel for the longest time was the Sinola cartel. Mostly they dealt with dealing drugs. And that was basically it. Sure, they had. They bought a bunch of guns, and they provided security and protection and extortion. And they were a mob. They were the biggest mob in Mexico at the time. Um, what happened? What's happened recently, in like the past ten years, is after El Chapo. Uh, I think it's Guzman. Uh, after he was uh, captured and extradited to the United States. There was confusion in the top ranks, but then El Chapo's son, he came to power. This guy suck to not, like, I would hate to have, like, a famous dad. Because, like, no one knows this kid's real name. He's just El Chapo's son. But anyways, uh, he's of great importance because he's the now, he's now the head of the Sinola uh, cartel. But the Mexican government has captured him. They captured him twice, actually. The first time they captured him, the police there were ill-equipped, ill, ill-prepared for the situation that unfolded because they were threatened by massive retaliation if they kept and traded or got rid of uh, El Chapo's son. They would, there was going to be war. But then... And they let him go, because obviously you don't want everyone in a certain village to be slaughtered over one guy. So they let him go. Uh, but then, uh, I don't know if it was the Mexican police or the military, but the Mexican government got, government got him again. And this time, they kept his ass. And there was massive, there was massive, crazy shit just went down with that. I remember uh, there was, I don't remember the article or who wrote it. It's probably inflationary at this point, but I saw a anti-aircraft gun, but like a ZS, something, something crazy, but like not stupid crazy if you know about Cold War era anti-aircraft artillery. Basically, they had it like pointed at civilian aircraft, like jetliners, like 
Ryanair. They were just threatening to shoot down these planes. Uh, as far as I know, the Mexican government didn't budge, and he is the El Chapo son is still in captivity. But yeah, there was there was like gunfights and massive retaliation by the Sinaloa cartel because the Mexican government was cracking down on them. What's happened in the meantime is the Sinaloa cartel, while while still exists, uh, it I mean there is some credit due to the cup, uh, the head of the snake strategy. One being that the Sinaloa cartel is heavily weakened. Uh, but there are two two drawbacks to this plan that I don't I don't really see working out too well. One is that because there is no like head of the cartel, there's basically a bunch of splinter groups. Um, these and these splinter groups are led by like various strongmen. These strongmen are going to battle it out amongst themselves. It's going to be PUBG Mexico because there, there's the top spots up for grabs and there's no primogeniture. Uh, no one's getting it passed down to them. The title's up for grabs and we're going to see who climbs the top of that ladder and gets the steel briefcase. Uh, the second part is there is actually a, another cartel in the eastern part of the country that is very, very much more violent and more political than the uh, Sonola Cartel, and they are they have rapidly expanded within the past five years, and they are at real risk of just overtaking the Sonola Cartel altogether and becoming the sole government of cartel, not government of, of cartel, the sole perpetrator of cartel activity in Mexico and in the United States. But like I said, they are vastly more violent. They don't, yes, they make money. All cartels since the seventies and the eighties have been making money through the drug trade. Um, the problem is with this group, they highly more political, heavy, more branded, more organized, than the Sonora Cartel ever was. So their ability to commit organized violence against not only the Mexican government, but Mexican citizens, and I pray to God, but probably in the future, maybe even now, with those four people who were kidnapped uh, last week, um, they could commit violence against American citizens. And I don't know what we do at that point, but Dan, Daniel Crenshaw, ever the Warhawk, wants to violate Mexico's sovereignty by using United States forces to battle these drug dealers. And his defense is that the Mexican drug trade is poisoning the United States government. Well, I mean, yes, but there's deeper issues here. Like, we can't just, like, you have to ask why people are, like, no one's forced, like, the Mexican cartels aren't forcing people to take these drugs. These people are hooked on opiates. And whenever we went after the pharmaceutical companies for making these opiates and the doctors, well, those people who were addicted didn't get the help to, like, 
actively recover from them. So what they did is they turned to the black market to get their kick. And at this time, fentanyl is lacing tons and tons of these drugs. So people are getting poisoned. There's, but it's not like, it's not Mexico's fault. Obviously the Mexican government has came out against this bill that has been introduced because they don't want to be invaded by the United States for, what is it, a third time? Because Mex the Mexican people are a sovereign people. Can we assist them? We have been assisting. We have been assisting in the drug Like the DEA is actively within Mexico doing counter narcotics operations. That's a given. I don't know what we do. I think what we do is we. America needs to use its soft power more because in the past like 20 years our hard power has not worked out too well. Uh, Iraq is Iraq is doing a lot better than most people thought they would be. Um, but that's because they fucking don't like they're they hate us being there. Like the the parliament in Iraq votes basically every two years to kick the United States out. But America only pays lip service to that shit. And ISIS like, just made that bigger. Anyways, I'm getting off topic. Uh, war is not the option here. War is not how we go after these people. It's a societal issue. And it's not something we can fix by sending combat troops into Mexico just to get bogged down. Because that's what will happen. Mexico is a place where local guerrilla forces have basically been fighting on and off for like the past two centuries, three centuries. If if you think if if we think how people view Vietnam is like Vietnam, the Vietnam War, and the American mythos right now as like the bloodiest quagmire, that would be it would be so small compared to American American uh, intervention into the domestic disputes of Mexico. Mexico's a hard land. It's people, like, it's people are so tough and, like, we just, we can't deal with that by shooting people. I know, Dan, I know, I don't really like Dan Crenshaw. Uh, he's probably He's writing the coattails of his lost eye. I know that sounds bad, but like to be a, like congressmen don't actually govern. They don't do shit. If anything, they just waste your time. But uh, I think through understanding and societal change, not only through helping the Mexican government, because the Mexican government does need 
U.S. support. That's what NAFTA has been. That's what the Monroe Doctrine has been. That's what the relationship between the United States and Mexico has been ever since. Uh, ever since the Mexican War of Independence, which I guess is what I can call it. I don't know, I don't know what Mexicans call that war. I don't know, I'm gonna call it the Mexican War for Independence. That's where you get Cinco de Mayo from. So. Yeah, it's not only supporting Mexico, as we have done historically, but it comes from helping the drug issue in the United States. And that doesn't come from killing the cartel. The cartel is just the middleman. middleman. Um, if I order a couch from Big Lots, and for some reason all the uh, all the delivery drivers got shot in the head I still need to get my fucking couch so I'm gonna go and get it the only thing is to stop this issue is me wanting a couch so the American people wanting drugs is like that couch you gotta teach the American consciousness to not crave these drugs. And it's not by the DARE drug, DARE program, like that shit has failed. There's there's more socioeconomic ways to combat this dilemma than being a war hawk or being a Reaganite. And hopefully we find a way to fix that. Alright, well, how long was this episode then? Oh, Jesus Christ, this is the longest episode yet. All right, uh, well, I've been Dalton Meeks. Thank you for listening to my rant on the history of Mexican-American relations. You have a good night. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.